We are the forgotten generation, a misplaced slice of the 20th century when birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. We lived under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation, playing outside, but always inherently knowing the future was indoors. We are the second half of Generation X. We were some of the first to play video games, program home computers, and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our generation was nourished by New Wave, Imperfect Punk Rock, and John Hughes movies. We built Web 1.0 from the ground up using our childhood 8-bit and 16-bit programming skills. They call us Gen X. We prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines because that's where we live, love, and thrive. We are Generation Atari. happen that I'm not home when the big news arrives. For instance, in 1982, I was camping on a river in a makeshift campground named Stumbletown with my dad and brother, panning for gold when Ross Perot suddenly left the presidential race. He was the first politician I cared about, and I was devastated. Likewise, in the summer of 1984, I was on a trip from Los Angeles to Santa Clara with my mom and brother when the news came through that Atari had been sold to Jack Tremell. We were at my uncle's house and I recall the exact words he said to us. He was a Commodore computer fan and he knew much about the shenanigans of ex-Commodore CEO Jack Tremell. Jack Tremell will ruin Atari just like he ruined Commodore, he said. I didn't believe him then but as the months passed by and it became that Atari, the company I'd grown to love in my youth, was fast becoming a shadow of its former self, I often recall that moment in the summer of 1984. The moment before my uncle told us about Atari's fate, I was blissfully enveloped in my world of Atari games and Atari computers and the notion that I would one day grow up to program games for Atari. The next moment, it all evaporated. It was a sudden change. Atari had been having trouble, I knew that much. But they had weathered the storm on the great North American video game crash. They were going to keep making the computers and they were going to release the Atari 7800 Pro System. Then suddenly, they were gone. That moment in 1984 in my uncle's living room in his two-story Santa Clara house smack dab in the middle of Silicon Valley lives forever in my vertical blank. Into the vertical blank.
Welcome to Into the Vertical Blank. This week, we are inspired by one of our favorite all-time podcasts, This American Life. Taking a cue from Ira Glass's often copied but never duplicated style, we have collected three new stories on a single topic, going, going, gone. The world must evolve. There are no two ways about it. However, when things change, there are always those bits left behind that can be sensed by people who have a fondness for the way things once were. In today's episode, we have three stories about such places. The world might have passed them by, but long-held memories and events unforgotten still linger in those spaces. When you enter them, it's like the future and the past exist together, forever entwined and inescapable. Our first going story from myself Steve is called Surprise Box. It's about a seaside arcade that is destined to close forever. Redondo Beach, my hometown, is a fine place to live. It is beach access, great weather, good schools, a low crime rate, and generally good neighbors that, for better or worse, keep to themselves most of the time. At the same time, it's high density, with many neighborhoods sporting miles and miles of condos, two or three to a lot. It's sprawling in size, too, snaking near and around at least a half dozen cities. The sprawl gives Redondo Beach a flavor of many other distinct nearby locales. However, unless you live in the ultra-exclusive southernmost tip of the city, it's hard to have an identity living in Redondo Beach. It's not the party town of Hermosa, the exclusive hills of Palos Verdes, the rich enclave of Manhattan Beach. It's not the working class Lawndale, the land of corporate headquarters like El Segundo, or the hyper-suburbia of Torrance. It has a little of all those things, yet feels like none of them at the same time. Like much of America, Redondo also has a dying indoor mall, and it also has a waterfront, the Redondo Beach Pier. If you've never heard of it, that's because there's not too much there to make it stand out. It was used as a filming location for the TV show Riptide in the 1980s. Remember that show? It starred Perry King and Joe Penny and Murray and a robot. You don't? It only lasted two seasons. It was a rare semi-success, semi-failure by mega-producer Stephen J. Canal. Maybe a good allegory for the city itself, now that I think about it. Ever since I was a kid in the 70s, the Redondo Beach Pier had been known as a place to watch yourself. What did lure us there, however, was a sizable seaside arcade named the Redondo Beach Fun Factory. The Redondo Beach Fun Factory is not really a beloved local landmark. Instead, it's a bizarre seaside amusement emporium covered top to bottom in random ephemera, signage, and a creepy paint job. It has a working tilt-a-whirl, but otherwise is filled with partially functional and non-functional games. When I was a kid, I was never allowed in the Redondo Beach Fun Factory alone. I recall my dad taking us there once, in like 1975, after a meal of fried clams at a restaurant next door. There might have been a few arcade games, but I never noticed them. Instead, we went to a row of mechanical coin-operated ride-ons. I remember my brother and I taking turns on a mechanical line before we were rushed out the door to the other side into our car. What I recall from the short time walking through from one door to the next was how dangerous it all felt. Later in the 70s, my mom would take us there for a few minutes on lazy summer days. She'd exchange a dollar and my brother and I would choose a couple games wisely. My mom watching us like a hawk to protect us from predators before we hopped the dime bus for a ride home. In the height of the gang era of my teens in the 80s, we avoided the place for fear of our lives. As it was rumored to be owned by a local chapter of the Crips, and turf wars with the NSR gang of North Redondo Beach were the stuff of legend. Back then, at least most of the games worked. These days, it's as dirty and in your face as a Dave & Buster's is clean and surreal. But then, the fun factory is also real. It's a very tactile 
style physical nature to itself that is compelling, at least for a short visit. For instance, the tyranny of tokens and chips never held a grip at the Redondo Beach Fun Factory. Every game uses actual quarters. There's no mysterious exchange rate hidden on debit cards and in token exchanges. Here you know exactly what you're getting. And the games are cheap these days, maybe a quarter or 50 cents each. That is, if you can find one that's working. It's also kind of a bizarro world, Dave and Buster's, where there are ticket redemption machines, but the prizes you can get are absolutely bizarre. Weird stuff that you wouldn't find anywhere else. In 2017, the city of Redondo Beach bought out the lease for the Fun Factory for $9 million, under the assumption that the whole pier would be raised for a glistening and shiny new pier, but that plan fell through. However, the city still wants the Fun Factory closed, and many residents don't mind seeing it gone. In the Easy Reader, our local newspaper, local resident Paul Moses said this at the Fun Factory. Recently, my sister-in-law and her daughters came to visit. They went to the Fun Factory, played games, and went to redeem their tickets for a mystery bag. Inside the bag was a pencil, an ashtray, and a Hustler Casino tank top. This buyout is $9 million well spent. And that's the end of his letter. So, here we are in March 2019, and Redondo Fun Factory is going to close in September, and nobody cares. In this case, not even really me. Well, that's not true. I actually have mixed feelings about it. So recently, my son Owen and I decided to make a trip to the Redondo Beach Fun Factory. We wanted to check out how it was these days. Check out to see how many games were still working, and get a bead on those mystery bags, something we'd experienced ourselves in the past. Here is that adventure we went on a couple weeks ago. Owen's tying his shoes right now. We are at the Redondo Pier, planning to go to the Redondo Beach Fun Factory. But I'm wearing Doc Martens, and for some reason their laces are way too short. So, how many times did we go to the Fun Factory when you were a kid? I recall going to the Fun Factory at least like 10 times. What do you think of it? It smells a lot like fish, which is cool, so I don't like fish. But it does have this really cool horse racing game. I remember playing where you have to like sh- throw balls up into this thing, and then if you get it in the right one, the ball, the horse moves further. It has a lot of classic games in it, doesn't it? Apparently, yes. according to the website, everything is for sale right now because it closes in September, and they're trying to renew their lease, but it's not going to happen. So we're going to go see what condition everything is in in the Fun Factory. I wonder if they still have the same dinosaur eggs from when I was like five years old. Remember the chicken with the chicken eggs that hatched? Like you would pay a quarter and they'd come out? Yeah, I remember those. Cool. We're going in there now. There's an old Fun Factory neon sign in like primary colors that's really creepy but also looks really cool. So the side of the building that's closed is actually kind of creepy, right Owen? I mean, this place has always been a little creepy. It's, It's pretty creepy. The fun fish market smells so much like fish, and I don't know how fun it's, it and is. And it's connected to the fun factory, so it yeah. makes the fun factory smell like... Fish. Fun yep. fish. Exactly. Fun fish, fun factory. Okay, it looks amazing in here. All of the signs are like, I don't know, they're like ancient signs. I don't know exactly where they're from, but it's like it's decorated really cool in here, and like they have big flashing like Edison bulbs everywhere. We'll take some pictures so we can put them up with this... Uh, this podcast so people can see what it looks like. Let's see what games they have. First of all, they have these like little carousel, like kids carousel. Here's Owen playing Centipede. Back at it. Um, trackball is really disappointing I here. spider, oh no, it better ate me. The trackball, like the, this is what I remember for this place. The maintenance of the machines is terrible. So you can hardly roll the trackball on this, this on this millipede machine. All right. I can't move it to the side. Yeah, that's the problem. The trackball doesn't work. Strike one against the uh, fun factories and their 
machines don't work. So this is the Hey Kids, It's a Puppet Show, Put a Coin in the Slot and Make It Go machine. Mm, it's uh, not making any sound, but it is moving creepily, so I think that was good enough, right? Yeah, we're not. Yeah, it's terrifying. They're just kind of wiggling, you know? Mm, okay. So we've got a kicks machine, but um, the joystick doesn't move up. Oh, Owen got it to move up um, by pushing it really hard, but it, you know, mostly the game doesn't work. So another example of a game here that has is totally non-functional. I don't even know what we're doing. You're supposed to make boxes oh. and fill up the screen, but because you can't control it, it makes it really, really hard. It's kind of a fun game if you can actually move it. But yeah, this is another really example fun of, if I can move it. of a game that I'd love move. this game if I could move it. We just played the water sporting game for 25 cents. It was both of us, and uh, Owen won. So. Yeah. That was cool. Now we're going to try some skee-ball. Skee-ball. How'd you do, Owen? I'm doing okay. I've been last ball. You ready? Ready? Yes. Ready? Oh! Ah, uh, All right, get the tickets. We gotta get, we gotta get one of those grab bags at the end. So. Trying to combine our tickets with the Yeah, of course. We got The goal of this trip is to get enough tickets. For what, Owen? for a grab bag or box. The last time I got one of these grab boxes when I was probably 11, I'm 16 now, so about five years ago, and there was a bunch of cassette tapes, I got some dollar store lotion, and I also got some Mexican soccer trading cards. All right, so, so. we're gonna see what we get this time. Hey, look, a basketball game. Owen is playing the NBA basketball game now. It ate my quarters, but his he got his. But they're not real basketball. No, they're, they're like rubber balls. Uh, yeah. And you got like, Five tickets, so we're yeah, good. I got like seven, eight, eight points, six points. How much? Six points. Six points. All right. The rubber balls. <laughs> hey, we're gonna play run, trot, walk right now. Twenty-five cents. Ready? Oh, yeah. Remember, you gotta get that. So you gotta roll these. Uh... One. I don't know. Oh, you won. Great. All right. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. Owen won the horse racing game. I love the horse racing game, it's my favorite. Alright, we're going to examine the prizes right now to see how many tickets we need to get a grab bag, which are the most amazing things. So the small prize box is five tokens, and the big one is ten, and the huge one is thirty. I think we and should we go need for the thirty. We need to go for the thirty, but that's a lot of tickets. We need to go play some more. Yeah, yeah. Alright, let's go do that then. Owen is playing deal or no deal. We're right next to the actual Tilt-A-Whirl here. Oh, in the corner over there, there's a bunch of classic games. I gotta go try those out. Open five cases. Five cases. Do you wanna do this? Do one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, just do an order. One, two, three, four, five. Exactly. Yeah, that actually worked out. We can get 200. Nice. Okay. Still get 200. Owen wants to try the claim jumper game where you try to get here. Go for it. I'll give you two. See if you can win some tickets for it. Meanwhile, I wanna play their classic Namco 20th anniversary Galaga Pac-Man. Oh, you got it in. I don't know if you get anything for it. I don't know if this machine even gives anything. For I don't know. Oh, no, this is off. Nope, the 
Galaga machine doesn't work. Most of the classic games here are not in operational. Centipede is messed up. Everything's messed up, unfortunately. Most all the classic video games are in terrible condition. So Dave and Buster's now has a ton of these token dropping machines where you try to win, you try to knock the tokens off and win credits. They're here half at, as rigged as these. Here at the Renata Beach Fun Factory, they have these ones from the 70s that use actual quarters and they're really rigged badly. Like you, the, the, the accuracy is way off just to, I remember people playing these in the 70s obsessively, but we tried it. It's not worth putting any more quarters in. So here's a really bizarre machine that says deal or no deal on top. It's like the top of a dealer no deal machine. Then it's a glass case called Clean Sweep, which is, which looks like it's a, um, a grabber game, but it has old crappy DVDs in it from like the, the 99 cent store. I have to take a picture of it. It's an amazing piece of folk art, arcade folk art. So we're trying a game called Goofy Hoops where you try to catch 10 balls and get 250 tickets. Who knows what's going to happen? All right, we're going to try this right now. Right. Does the, do the quarters actually go in? Looks like it's going to work. Got to catch them. Oh, no. Oh, you got one. Oh, this is actually kind of fun. Come on. Oh, yeah. Got another one. Come on, Goofy Hoops. Three. You got three. Three tickets. So they have the world's largest Pac-Man machine, but the joystick doesn't work, for, doesn't push up very well, so it makes it really hard. Well, we used all of our money, so now we're going over to see if we can get a grab bag. A grab, what's it, the, the, the what's it, the, the prize box. Okay, let's go see, let's go see. We're doing the ticket machine now. It's eating our tickets, we're hoping to get 250 so we can get the grab box. Well, we only actually needed, we only need 125, which we have. We have 125. We a small grab box. Are they only 25 each? They're, they're, they're 125 each. Oh, because they're 25 um, tickets per uh, token? Yeah. Oh, so if we have 250, we can get the big grab box, though. Yeah. You know what that's going to be? Even more lotion. Now to the ticket thing coming out. 155. 155. So we did get the 250. We got the 250. We can get the big grab box. Let's do it. All right, Owen, you, what did you get? So we got a white medium grab box and we got a yellow and a dragonfly Britney pencil. Um, what the choices were the other were, the, we had Britney, Ashley, or Morgan were our choices for the one, 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 one token. token prizes. All right. They're all 90s names, right? Yeah. Okay. Brittany let's Morgan let's get into this grab box and see what it is. It there looks is. Like there's one item in. There's, oh, there's several. Okay. Oh my! What is that? We have. That is a macrame. A, a glove. It is a clean. It, it's a cleaning. It's a glove. cleaning glove. It's a. It's a Bubba BG glove. <laughs> for, for, for dusting. It's a I dust, think it's a dusting glove. It's a dusting glove. What right. else is in there? Okay, let's find out. Okay. I think what? it might be like, <laughs> like a bag or a shirt. I don't know. Open it up. It's a bag. It's a bag, it's a bag of bag. some tote bag. Tote. Is it underpants? Is it a skirt? No, it's it's like they're like gas station pants. They're like yes. mini mini pants. We have to put okay. A mini pants. <laughs> there's a with pair of silky kind of like silky Asian. mini pants. I think they're supposed to be like some. Uh. Okay. Or, or is it like Hawaiian? Hawaiian? I'm not sure. What else you got? We got some reading glasses of an unnamed uh, type. 
Oh my god. A trick or treat bag. A trick or treat bag. Oh my god. Okay. And what's that? From the Harvest Festival. <laughs> the Harvest Festival is the water, water um, the conservation festival we have. It's a Mysterio sticker. Hold on. All right. Sticker. So there. What did you think, Owen, of our trip to? All right. What did you think of our trip to the? Um... Well, I think this was very worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> we got the we grab got bag. All the prizes we needed. Hold on. I got to take a picture of you in the prize. So that this was our trip to the Ravana Beach Fun Factory. Should people come? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Don't so expect the machines bag. to work or anything to actually work. But it certainly is an experience, and it's an amazing-looking re relic that's going to go away in September. So you should at least come down here We're gonna and check it out. We're going to have to come back at least one more time. Yeah. Back home now. Owen, what did you think of the Fun Factory? It was everything I wanted and more. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our adventure at the Fun Factory. Broken machines, broken dreams, and bizarre prizes from the mystery box. When the venue closes in September, I can only imagine it opening up immediately as a Halloween attraction. The bizarre collection of smells, weird signs, dark corners and passageways, and decrepit machines would make a dynamite Scooby-Doo themed walkthrough. Just add flickering lights, a few jump scares, and machines that turn on by themselves, and it would be enough to scare the crap out of anyone. I'm only speculating here, but that may be the life that the Fun Factory has beyond its last 40 or so years as a seaside amusement arcade. Our next going story from Jeff is called The Magic Basement. It's about a once mighty retail establishment that is now on its last legs, but still fighting to stay alive. Sears. The blue Datsun 710 station wagon rumbled to a stop in the car park. The metal doors squeaked and groaned violently as the Fulton Six from Manhattan Beach piled out of the car and into the sunlight of the Torrance, California, Delamo Mall Annex parking lot. Steve and I were let out of the rear compartment by our mom. Our sisters each climbed out of their respective left and right rear doors. Dad came around the back and helped mom get the two of us and we all dusted off and straightened our clothes and walked across the parking lot toward the west-facing entrance to what was the first mega store in the area. As we entered the store, the sweet smell of popcorn, ices, soft drinks, ice cream, and other delights wafted through the air. This was the usual highlight of the trip. Steve and I would get to pick out a snack at the end of the trip after our family members searched and found their Sears branded items that sold for 10 to 20% less than at other retailers. Directly behind the popular snack stations were the tools. Dad thumbed his nose at the Sears tools and called them Crapsmen a play on the Craftsman brand that Sears put on what he said to be cheap knockoffs of Stanley and other tools he preferred. What is now a single mall that encompasses 2.6 million square feet was then a series of three smaller mall segments, the southernmost being a Sears and JCPenney Annex. 
This would later be connected to the two other mall segments into what is considered to be one of the largest malls in the USA. The northern part of the mall, the cool part, contained a small carnival of pleasures for two seven-year-old boys, a movie theater, some incredible caramel corn stands, a J.J. Newberry with inexpensive toys, Star Wars cards, and candy, and even a lower-level Aladdin's Castle Arcade across from a McDonald's. The arcade had bumper cars and a burgeoning collection of the latest arcade video games. It was also dark, filled with surly 70s teenagers, cigarette smoke, loud noises, and heavy metal music. We were not allowed to go into the arcade by ourselves, but we did get to try a couple games every once in a while on the periphery. Every now and then, if one of our parents was feeling exceptionally generous after a meal at McDonald's, we were each given a quarter to try out the Pong or the Avalanche machine that was right outside the scary dark arcade's borders. But this day, we were in the southern part of the mall, far removed from the cool portion, stuck in a place that seemingly advertised all kinds of fun stuff in its holiday wish book, but somehow hid those same items when trying to find them in the store. So essentially, Steve and I were always bored during a trip to Sears, unless Dad was looking for sports or camping equipment. But not today. Today was different. Dad was looking for some HO or N-scale train parts that he had seen as advertised at being at Sears. And because he really wants Steve and I to get into building with something other than Legos, as he called them, he was excited to find train items listed in a local store. I could see the frustrated look on my dad's face as he searched the store. His two young boys in tow. He didn't see anything other than tough skins and other Sears clothing in departments beyond the tools and sporting goods. Once he was completely frustrated, he begrudgingly asked one of the employees where he could find the hobbies section. This was a revelation to us. Little Mouse and Big Mouse, which Steve and I had started calling each other over walkie-talkies when we played outdoor games at our house. We were stunned. Hobbies sounded like cool stuff. Sears had cool stuff? The employee directed Dad to a set of stairs that seemingly led down to a stock room, but was in fact something entirely different. A small sign right above the doorway said hobbies, toys, and electronics. What? Little Mouse said back to me, Big Mouse, as we stared at the partially obscured sign. We had never known this existed. As we followed our father to the stairway and then into the bowels of the store, we started to see wonders that we had not seen at a Sears before. At the first landing on the stairs, halfway down, there was a bank of five coin-operated machines. One sold candy, one sold strange trinkets like a dog that smoked cigarettes, but the other three were video games. There was a machine where two cowboys squared off in a pixelated gun battle. 
We immediately recognized this as something that would pique Dad's interest because it was like one of the Western films he might watch on a Sunday afternoon. The second machine was a broken Pong clone. And the final machine, the one that got our attention, the attention of Little Mouse and Big Mouse, pitted two players in a war through virtual space. This game was Space War. As we walked by the machines, Dad took a curious look at the gunfight machine, while Steve and I looked longingly at the Space War machine. Daddy, can we try this game? One of us asked. Let's look at the train stuff first, okay boys? Okay, Daddy, we said back, in full hope that this meant that we'd be back up on this landing, trying to shoot one another in virtual space in a few minutes. Once we reached the bottom of the stairs, the old stock room opened up into a brand new toy, game, hobby, and entertainment paradise. Oh, it was sparse, with too many cheaply suited car and furniture salesman types trying to hawk TVs, but it had potential. The signs with names like TV games, board games, trains, models, paints and supplies were the ones we had never seen at a Sears before and never all in the same store at the same time. It was an incredible spectacle for a couple of seven-year-old boys who had previously only expected popcorn and maybe an icy as a reason to visit Sears. Dad asked one of the pushy TV salespeople where the hobbies were located. He groaned and pointed up at a one-half empty set of aisles that were being stocked for the fall and upcoming holiday season. One look at the putrid HO and N scale train selection and Dad was angry. Crap! Always crap at Sears, he mumbled under his breath. No better than Radio Shack! The disappointment on his face was replaced with a smile when Steve said, Would you like to have a gunfight, Daddy? Little Mouse was referring to the machine in the stairwell. But to Dad, it was his son coming to save the day with a suggestion that meant his kids actually cared and understood a little bit about him. There was no way a machine with smoking dog figures, sugary snacks, or even space explosions was going to cheer him up. But a good old gunfight even with odd pixelated cowboys, was just the thing he needed to forget about his distaste for everything Sears. Back in the stairwell, Dad fished out three or four quarters. First, Steve explained to him the simple controls of the gunfight machine. One cowboy on the left, one on the right, wagons and cactus in the way, you have six shots, and you have to try and hit the other guy. Steve said as I marveled at how he could easily communicate with my dad in a language all their own, different than how Little Mouse and Big Mouse talked to one another, and far different than I was able to talk to my dad. Steve, of course, shot and killed the old man a number of times before he fished out a couple more quarters and asked if we wanted to play the space game. Little Mouse and Big Mouse started up a game of Space War by pressing a number of IBM Selectric-style buttons on the cabinet and chose a game variation where we could warp off the side of the screen and had a gravitational sun pulling us into the center. 
I chose the Star Trek looking ship, which Dad immediately recognized, and a smile came across his face. And Steve chose the triangle style ship. The controls were a series of buttons, not unlike a PC numpad, pretty unwieldy and difficult to manipulate with tiny seven-year-old fingers. But we made the best of it. Steve struck first. He was able to, if not master, then get a hang of the controls right away. While I thrusted into the sun and kept spinning until death, Steve hung back and fired at my tiny Enterprise with astonishing accuracy. When the game was over, and Little Mouse having triumphed over Big Mouse, Dad fished out his last quarter and said, That was fun, boys. I like watching you play. Here, try again. Over the years, Sears and Torrance and that newly created Toys, Hobby, and Electronics section would prove to be a place that we would visit often to look for video games, especially Atari and Vectrex. That Sears is gone now. I look back at those times and I think of the smell of the popcorn and the snacks that you could get. The whole entire Fulton family piling into the station wagon and then out again, then splitting up to find our treasures and especially that downstairs basement at the Sears. Places like that don't seem to exist anymore. Our kids will only think of piling onto the internet and buying things on Amazon. They're not going to have the same type of memories we had of a giant Sears that contained everything you could want. And video games to me are always in those memories part of those memories and a reason why we visited those stores, especially when we found out the magic basement of the Sears that is no more. The final piece, a gone story named Terms Not Disclosed, from me again, Steve, talks about a certain restaurant from my youth that has disappeared and may never come back. Terms Not Disclosed. There is something significant missing on the restaurant landscape these days, at least here where I live, the classic pizza parlor. This was not just a pizza restaurant, but a community experience unlike anything that exists today in franchise form. The pizza parlor was not a single restaurant, but instead a concept of what it meant to eat pizza with your friends and family. When I was growing up in the South Bay, there were two main establishments a mile or so apart on Sepulveda Boulevard that offered similar experiences in the genre, Straw Hat Pizza and Shakey's Pizza. While there were some others, i.e. Pizza Hut, they were subpar bit players in my tiny kid world. concept of the pizza parlor went something like this. A huge, 
dimly lit communal room filled with long wooden tables and benches and a selection of potential entertainment. Silent movies, a player piano, a stage, a mechanical horse, and arcade games. Patrons stood in line to order. No wait staff was allowed. You ordered your pizza at a small counter that allowed just enough view of the kitchen activity, i.e. pizza dough being tossed and whirled, to let you know everything was freshly made. Later, you picked up your pizza at a similar window about 10 feet to the right. The counter was decorated in rustic decor, fake bricks or a wall made of wine barrels and or beer bottles. The theme extended around much of the room, setting the tone of the surroundings and expectations of the patrons. Two main items available at the pizza parlor were pizza and beverages. The pizza was pretty much self-explanatory but varied by establishment. The beverage situation, however, was fairly unique. Adults would order pitchers of beer and kids would emulate them with glasses of root beer. If the kids were really lucky, they would get a pitcher of root beer themselves. Soft drinks were never all you can drink, so the pitcher was the next best thing and it was very special indeed. Getting a pitcher of soft drinks was just about the coolest thing that could happen for a kid at one of these places. There was something uniquely 70s about this beverage situation. At the time, it was fairly common for some adults to get very drunk with their kids in tow. The occasion did not matter. Birthday parties, soccer picnics, softball team dinner. The protocol was generally the same. These places were not Chuck E. Cheese's where parents avoided the food and chased their kids for two hours. The amusement scattered around the place lured kids away while their parents did their own thing. There was a lot of waiting in these pizza parlors, as the freshly made dough and pizzas took time to prepare in real pizza ovens. This could take anywhere from 30 to 90 minutes or more, depending on the size of the crowd at the pizza parlor. While waiting for food, parents ordered more beer while socializing at giant wooden tables. The kids, meanwhile, wandered unsupervised through the darkened cavern looking for excitement. The silent movie screen was the most obvious diversion, as it was the largest and the brightest thing in the room. A loop of silent Laurel and Hardy, Three Stooges, Tom and Jerry cartoons, and old newsreels played continuously. It added a hypnotic aura to the place, offering an otherworldly, dreamlike state for those who stared too long at the flickering screen. The next most obvious diversion was the mechanical horse, a near full-size bucking bronco of a kid's ride. The horse stood at least as tall as any kid, and in some cases, a good head above them. You would climb up on the leather stirrups, drop your coin in the coin box on one side, and prepare to lurch into action. The horse would start abruptly and jolt back and forth wildly. While this was not an urban cowboy mechanical horse by any means, for a four to eight-year-old kid, it was quite a ride. The horse was operated by pennies, available free from the pickup counter. not free, however, were the video games. 
the pizza parlor was a major source of new video games in the late 70s and very early 80s. Their blinking screens punctuated the dimly lit interior, creating excitement in the kids with quarters burning in their pockets. Asteroids Deluxe, Missile Command, Gorf, Dig Dug, Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, and many others all made their local debut at one of our pizza parlors. There were also older games, like electromechanical baseball, shooting galleries, and trivia contests, still hanging on in the video game age, trying to wring every last coin possible. Together, the mix of old and new offered a rare flavor that was hard to find elsewhere. When the pizza finally arrived, the kids were called back to eat. Each pizza parlor had their own unique take on what the perfect pizza could be, but Straw Hat was my favorite. Their pizza included massive cheese bubbles over the crust that were as fun to pop as they were to eat. The pieces were always double cut, which made sharing much easier. Shaky's Pizza was good as well because it had a distinct sauce and a good mix of cheese. However, the pizza was really the last act in a well-rounded pizza parlor experience. It was important, but maybe not as important as just being there with all your friends, having the time of your life. Sometimes if you were really lucky, the silent movies would turn off and the little stage would come alive with musicians. Often the pizza parlor was home to local bluegrass and country artists who would play weekends and weeknights. Live music added to the dark communal atmosphere for a truly memorable experience. In many cases, the adults would have just as good a time as the kids and no one really batted an eye or made a suggestion that maybe the mix of kids games, silent movies, live music, and a liquor license were not the most appropriate combination. It was just the way it was. Sometimes the kids were invited into the act. My wife, for instance, as a little girl in the early 1970s while at Straw Hat with her young and outgoing parents was called up to sing on stage with local bands, a memory she still holds dear to this day. Almost every community celebration in my youth ended up taking place at the pizza parlor. I attended dozens of birthday parties, school celebrations, Cub Scout get-togethers, and end-of-year sports team events at one of these restaurants. One of my fondest memories of the pizza parlor was in 1980, when our soccer team, the Rowdies, held our end-of-season celebration at Straw Hat Pizza. Our coach owned his own textile company, so the team had custom-made uniforms and jackets emblazoned with shiny fabric stars awarded when we did something good in a game. His company had also just made a deal with O.J. Simpson to create O.J. Simpson initialed sportswear. Not only did I card a nice hefty trophy out of Straw Hat that year, but also a loose-fitting blue velour O.J. Simpson sweatsuit that I won for being the most improved player. Community events like these types of parties had a natural place at the pizza parlor. As kids guzzled pitchers of soft drinks and played video games, running around the place creating mayhem, the adults sat back and reminiscent about their kids' passing youth over cold beer and warm memories. In 
1977, PepsiCo bought Pizza Hut and went on a tear buying up all the similar restaurant locations on the East Coast. By the late 80s, Pizza Hut had become a behemoth in the East and was ready to swallow the pizza business on a national scale. Their next target was out West and only Straw Hat stood in their way. The Straw Hat Pizza website in 2009 said this, By the mid-1980s, Straw Hat Pizza was regarded as the dominant pizza restaurant in the Western United States as the Pizza Hut chain was trying to establish a market presence in the same area. Pizza Hut made a move to eliminate a major stumbling block to its own expansion by purchasing all company-owned Straw Hat Pizza restaurants in 1987, thus removing its prevailing competition. Pizza Hut was never a favorite in our neighborhood. The pizza was just okay, but they had a different attitude about eating it. They had waiters, tables with chairs, booze, and a menu that extended far beyond what a traditional pizza parlor offered. There was little of the communal atmosphere with the pizza parlor at Pizza Hut, and while they had some video games, you'd be hard-pressed to find any kind of mechanical horse, silent movies, or live music stage inside one of their establishments. No one I knew frequented the local Pizza Hut very often. It was just not the place to go to be with other people. However, with the mighty wealth of PepsiCo behind it, Pizza Hut became unstoppable. Within a couple years, the local straw hat was consumed by this effort and turned into a Pizza Hut. There was no community outcry. It just happened. Large multinational corporations felt they knew what was best for the concept of pizza parlor, and its name was homogenization. The local Shakey's stayed around a year or so longer than Straw Hat, but it didn't last long either. All of the Shakey's restaurants in the USA were sold in 1989. From the New York Times, February 10th, 1989, Shakey's Inc., the domestic division of Shakey's Pizza Restaurants, has been sold to Indo-Pacific Holdings of Singapore, the company said, terms not disclosed. And that was basically it for the glorious age of the pizza parlor. Within the span of a couple years, the two biggest names in the South Bay were eradicated, and in their place came an empty storefront or a very corporate, very bland substitute. No matter how much I wanted it to be the same restaurant, though, the changes that had taken place under the new PepsiCo regime doomed the place to obscurity. The lights were turned brighter, the long wooden tables were removed, and the root beer pitchers were replaced with all-you-can-drink cups filled with Pepsi products. The video games removed to a back corner, hidden from view, the mechanical horse and live stage removed to add more booze, and the silent movie screen covered with sports memorabilia. The smaller tables brought smaller groups, and the communal party atmosphere at the pizza parlor were stamped out completely. In time, the loud music and happy voices from celebrating teams and community groups disappeared as well. Like a consumer zombie from Romero's Dawn of the Dead, I still frequented the location of the Straw Hat Pizza often after it was converted to a Pizza Hut. In the early 90s, my future wife and I went there every week to play our favorite pinball game, Machine Bride of Pinbot, but we hardly ever ate the pizza. Still, it was hard to be there for very long without getting too nostalgic for the pizza parlor of my youth. Memories hung around the place like residual spirits, magically implanted into the walls by the sheer volume of joy the building once held.
By the year 2000, Pizza Hut lit their pizza ovens for the last time and moved to a new location as a delivery-only storefront. The building reopened a few months later as a Mongolian barbecue, rendering the final remaining link, no matter how thin it might have been, to the age of the pizza parlor gone forever. Two games of Space War seemed to cement my love for side-by-side arcade play. It was something that we would continue on when we got the Atari 2600, the Atari 7800, the Atari 800, the Atari ST, and all the machines beyond. Next frame calculated, prepare to write new data, V blank ending.